Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of both Edwards & Co and J Haircare, Jay Edwards. I knew Jay Edwards as a brand founder and the man behind some of this country's most renowned and easily its most recognisable hair salons. But admittedly, I hadn't realised just how far he'd come to get where he is now. Jay grew up in a really small town and knowing he didn't quite fit in there or in the schooling system in general, he left home at only 15, just before his 16th birthday. He moved to Sydney and he fell into an apprenticeship at a hair salon. At around 21, he bought into the salon he was working at and subsequently lost everything to the tune of $50,000. Where most would have thrown in the towel, Jay tells me his ethos was to fail fast, learn a lot, and move on. And so he opened the very first Edwards & Co salon soon thereafter. Today, Jay sits at the helm of the eight Edwards & Co locations across Australia and his namesake brand, Jay Haircare, which has just launched into Mecca, with Jay constantly adapting his business model, making him sincerely one of the most progressive founders that I've had the pleasure of chatting to. Usually when I say something like, even if you don't have an interest in beauty, this conversation will have something of value to you. It's because I think anyone interested in business in general can take something from it. But in this case, I really think that what Jay has to say is relevant for everyone, even if your interests lie in neither business nor beauty. That's because I think Jay's story is one of really incredible resilience and also a really nice reminder that you don't have to have it all figured out from day one in order to be successful. Granted, Jay discovered a love for hair and beauty really young But his story still feels so different from many of our other guests in that despite suffering such great loss, he came back and everything he has now, he really did create for himself. In this conversation, Jay shares how he and his team physically and mentally made it through the events of the last year, how he managed to maintain the Edwards & Co DNA when opening a location within another brand space and why he walked out of his first job during his lunch break. You grew up in a small town and you left when you were about 16. So let's start there. What is your very, very earliest memory of beauty? Um, that's such an interesting question because to be honest, like hair or beauty or anything like that was never on my mind growing up in such a small town. Um, it's not something my mom is very into, like, um, so I I left home just before my 16th birthday. Um, I was super academic at school. Like I didn't, wasn't artistic or creative at all. Um, and I really needed a job when I got to Sydney. So I just did the most stereotypical thing a gay kid could do and walked into a hair salon. Um, so it wasn't really until I'd actually got a job in hair that I thought about beauty. Um, like I wasn't into like colognes or perfumes or like, you know, my mom didn't never, never did a hair or anything like that. Um, so it wasn't something that had ever crossed my mind. 
three seasons of this podcast and you were the first person to give me that answer. <laughs> it really is a first time for everything. I have heard you speak about how during your childhood and your teenage years you always wanted more. Did you have any idea at that time of what you might want to be when you grew up? Obviously it wasn't in beauty, but what did you think it would be? Yeah. I think when you grow up in a small town, you're kind of taught that you can be like a very few things. So you can be a doctor, you can be a nurse, you can be a teacher. Um, you're not taught that you can be a producer, an artist, an author, um, a journalist. You're not taught those things. So I just, like, I really didn't have a great time where I went to school or who I grew up with. Um, and it was like this instinctive feeling inside me that I knew I was deserved more. Um, I used to go and spend my school holidays with a cousin and of mine, her name's Beth. And she kind of always said, you know, you can have whatever you want. Like, you know, you can have whatever you want. Um, and I think that really stuck with me throughout my whole childhood. Um, and I just knew I was not going to stay in that small shitty town and amount to nothing or be constricted by, you know, what, um, what constraints even the school system puts on you. You know, I think when I, you know how you, sometimes you sit down at school and you sit that test of what you think you can be when you're older? Yep. I literally think my, mine was um, like an office assistant. Okay, oh, that's what it told me I could be. Um, and it's like, how can you sit there and tell children that they can be an office assistant? Like, that's so insulting. You know it's, what I mean? It's, it's restrictive, like the school system, even not in small towns. So if like, if... I felt that way, not being from a small town. I can imagine that would be like, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. I kind it doubles down as like a lot of pressure. And it like, I feel like that's why so many, and when I say so many, I'm only speaking from my own experience. Sure. A lot of the people I went to school with have stayed in that town mm-hmm. and still work at a grocery store or, you know, haven't really moved past what, move past the constraints that were placed on by school or society you know yeah no I absolutely get that and like great if if that's what makes you happy but if you Mm. are in a position where you feel like that's the only option for you then Mm -hmm. yeah you're not given the chance to like explore the alternatives exactly So you've mentioned that your very first job and your first, I guess, taste of the beauty industry was as an apprentice. You're at Global Hair. Did you you fall in love with the industry immediately or was it a slow burn? It was really a slow burn. Um, Like I was at that job for like a year to 18 months and I actually left in my lunch break because my employers weren't the nicest people. I wanted um, to I ask you about this because I, it, you know, popped up in my research and I was like, yeah. yes, I too have walked out of a job. So. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I just got to one and I was so young. I was like 17, nearly 18. Um, and it was just like, what am I doing? Like, why am I allowing someone to treat me like this? Um, it. I will say, though, for having been through that experience at such a young age, it has taught me a lot on how to be a good employer um, and how to respect people um, and how to keep staff as well. Um, I will say that she taught me how to do the best head massage I've ever, ever. So I always remember how to do the best head massage because of how she taught me. Because if I didn't give her clients the best head massage, I'd be in so much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice that you can take one good thing from that experience. (laughs) 
there's got to be something. So it was when you were, I mean, you were so young, 21 or 22, you've completed your apprenticeship and then you bought into the salon that you were working at and then subsequently lost something to the tune of $50,000. Talk me through that time. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so I, they had, were going to close because the owner was going to retire. So they put it out to everyone in the team if someone would like to buy in. And I had some money saved and my cousin was willing to help me a little bit. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. Being so young and naive, I didn't have any legal advice, no contracts in place, none of that stuff. Um, And the, the shares also hadn't been transferred over into my name after I handed over the money. I then found out through someone else that the building I was in was going to be refurbished, which would mean no salon for like two years. Um, And they hadn't told me about this, even even though they had known. Um, So that was actually one of like the hardest times ever because I'd lost all that money. And as a kid at that age, it's so much money. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of money now. Absolutely. Um, And I just, in hindsight, again, like it kicked me in, kicked me in the ass kicked me into gear and made me open the first Edwards & Co. So if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't have opened the first Edwards & Co. salon. Well, I was going to ask, was there anything that you learnt during that like really shitty time that you find you're still applying to your work now? But I guess if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation. A hundred percent. Like, I guess the biggest thing I learned was get a lawyer and make sure that he's your friend so he sticks by you. Uh, and I'm happy to say I have a really good friend who's a lawyer, so he's great for advice. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing I took away from it was to fail fast, learn a lot, and move on. Um, I think a lot the mistake business owners make is dwelling on what has been. Um, and I'm not really one to dwell. I'll have forgotten about something within minutes of it happening. Um, and I really encourage other people to be like that. Like take the lesson you've learned from it, hold on to it and forget the rest. Um, otherwise you just get stuck in the past and lose the ability to move on quickly, I think. So that's how you, I guess, mentally bounced back. But how did you physically bounce back from that launch? launch sorry, <laughs> and then how did you then open the first salon? So I had, originally I had a business partner um, and I had gotten more money from credit cards. I don't even know how the bank lent me money at that time. I had no savings, I had no assets, nothing. Like now they wouldn't give me money and I bought assets and savings, like go figure. It's all timing. Um, I, <laughs> um, so I had a business partner and she helped out a lot, but I actually bought her out three months in. It just wasn't working the way I had hoped. Um, and she wanted different things to what I wanted. I wanted a memorable, beautiful, Instagrammable experience. And she wanted to cut costs. Yeah, <laughs> that was, was never going to work. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> At what point had you physically decided that you did need to open your own salon? What did you think was missing from the existing offering? So where I was, the place that I had bought into was like a co-working space. Um, and it was really, it was really beautiful. But there were some things that, you know, people rented a chair and they could just come and go as they please. And there was no real culture. So I wanted to create an environment where my friends would come work with me, would have great culture, would be one big family. And, you know, I'm happy to say that as big as we are now, we still have that culture. Um, I have changed the business model throughout the last eight years. You know, we went from being a freelancer-only salon, 
which worked really well, but we weren't able to scale with that model. So then we moved to an employee majority salon with some freelancers. Um, and then now because we've got, you know, eight locations, I'm able to change the model again. And I'm going to have more of a balanced um, freelance and employee model, but also provide a career pathway um, for hairstylists to go from apprentice all the way through to freelance independent hairstylists within five years, um, wow. which is really cool. And for us, what that will do, you know, it allows us to compete with other brands that have come to market like Salon Lane, who are a, a freelance only independent salon, uh, which is awesome. Um, but I think the thing that's missing from them, sorry, sidetracked here, but the thing that's missing from them is their career pathway. Because um, who's going to train the next generation? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm I'm glad that you mentioned culture because I think, I mean, that just comes across from everything that you're doing. Naturally, opening a salon and then scaling in the way that you have, of course, it requires expanding the team. So I would love mm. to talk to you about that process, particularly now that you have so many locations. Mm-hmm. In as much or as little detail as you wish, how have you ensured that you are surrounding yourself with the right people? Is there a formula to it? Is it intuition? I think that initially I employ a lot of my friends, yeah. um, which was it's a blessing and the devil. Um, at the same time, I'm it, those people no longer probably work. They don't work for me anymore. Um, as Because, you know, I've had to scale so much that, my expectations outgrew what they could offer me. Um, and I think as a business owner, it's so important to not take that personally. It was really hard for me to not take it personally. And I did um, take it personal. Um, but the, the reason why we could scale was because of my friends. They believed in me. So they were the reason why we could scale. But once we got to that point, they weren't able to help anymore. So it's like, it's, it's a difficult thing to juggle so it's really important that I kept open communication, open dialogue. And of course, things sometimes didn't go the way I had planned and you have fallings out with those people and that's okay. But now, like, it's so important for me to be surrounded by people who believe in my vision um, and who support me, but also disagree with me when I'm wrong. That's so it's important. Like, yeah. And like, one thing I realized probably a year ago is that I created an environment where people weren't able to disagree with me. Um, and it took my personal assistant in Tira to say to me, you need them to disagree with you because you're wrong right now. And I'm like, you're so right, actually. That's so, so true. Um, so now I make sure that people respect me and believe in me, but also have the ability to disagree with me and think that I'm wrong. And I also think that like intuition is a huge thing. Um, and I go on my gut for a lot of things um from everything to be honest if i have a bad feeling about something um, i really trust that feeling and don't go ahead (laughs) i'm so glad you've mentioned that point about having to be around people that can disagree with you because every time i hear a couple that say oh we never argue i'm like oh do you hate each other are you too scared (laughs) to tell them when you're unhappy about something yeah absolutely i think it's so important like Otherwise, what will happen is that you think that your ideas are the best and then you'll follow those those ideas and they won't work and then you'll blame everyone else for that idea not working because they didn't tell you what wouldn't work. And that's like, that's how, that's what happens though. Like 
And I realized that it was never going to work because they weren't able to tell me it wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> it's a spiral. Yes. So you had the right people around you. You had lost everything once before though. So I imagine, you know, as much as you had this self-belief and a clear vision, there's got to be a little bit of trepidation there. But was there a specific moment that you kind of looked around and realised, okay, there is longevity in this. Edwards & Co has taken off. Yeah, I think that I'm not one to like look back and like go, oh, wow, we've come so far. I don't know why I don't do that. I don't do it enough. And I don't celebrate our small wins enough. But I think after I opened my second salon in Melbourne, um, that was like a pretty cool moment where I'm like, holy shit, I've opened a second salon in the space of one year. Um, and then we got uh, an article in Harper's Bazaar written by Eugenie, um, and it was called The Anti-Salon. And I think then that was like, wow, I'm like in a print magazine, full page article, what the fuck? <laughs> and I think that was like a good moment where I was just like, well, this, we're doing the right thing. Like we're full guns, like guns blazing, steam, full steam ahead. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned opening the second location in Melbourne because that was, yeah, less than a year, six months. How yes. how did you know that it was time to expand? And then on that, what would your advice be to other business owners who are sh- not necessarily in the beauty space but are thinking, mm. okay, is it the right time to grow or should I be staying put? What would your advice be? Um, I would say that I probably opened my second space a little prematurely. But I also went in with um, so much confidence. Like, I think that people are too fearful of the next step. And I think if you want to take the next step in opening your second business, launching a second product, whatever it might be, just do it. Don't listen to the noise all around you and just go ahead and do it. The reason I thought I was ready is because I was traveling down to Melbourne every six weeks. I put a clientele from Twitter. Um, I don't use Twitter anymore, but that's where I built my clients up from Melbourne on. Um, and it just took off. Like, I had five staff within, like, six weeks of opening. Um, now, in that particular salon, I actually, I was on the first floor of the building. Four months later, I took the second floor of that same building um, and doubled oh. the size of the salon. Um, you know, and the, most of the original staff who actually started with me no longer worked with me because they moved on to open their own salons. Um, but they are the reason that they are the reason that someone did so well. And I say that because without those super successful stylists bringing in all of those clients and that overflow going to the rest of your team, you don't have a salon. Um, so I think by, you know, one of them is Lauren McKellar. She's an incredible session stylist in Melbourne. Um, and a friend of mine as well. Uh, she was such a, um, one of those headdresses that, you know, there's, how do I say, one of those people that just like bring in so many clients. Yeah. And they add to that wow factor of the salon. Um, and then I've got like someone like Jay Taylor, incredible colorist. She's been with me since day one in Melbourne. Wow. That was like six years ago. And she's working for my Fitzroy salon now. Um, who are just so loyal to you. And it really allows you to, um, when you're close with your staff and you have that culture, it really allows you to have open conversation so that you're able to maintain your staff and keep them, um, but also um, acknowledge when it's ready for someone to move on. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we've been able to open um, so many salons every year. 
I know that was we just got sidetracked from your question, but I feel like it's all related. I'm upset if we don't get sidetracked, honestly. <laughs> I'd be fuming. While we're on launching interstate, Edwards & Co. Yeah. has such a clear brand identity. So how do you maintain that really specific DNA and ensure that it is consistent across all of the locations without physically being there? I feel like there's yeah. a whole other skill set in that. That's such a great question because I think where um, it's most important is the aesthetic first and yeah. foremost. So whenever you go into an Edwards & Co. salon, um, the salons look similar, different but similar. So they'll have the same artists on the walls, which is Brian Connolly. Um, you'll be served in the same teacups, the same sauces, the, you'll have the same wine served at every salon, the same coffee, the same teas. So it's those small touch points that are consistent across every location. So that's the first thing that you recognize as, as an Edwards & Co experience. Second to that, and I, I know everyone is probably shocked when I say second, but it is second is the hair. Um, you know, I say it's second because it is the, the touch points of the experience that matter most, um, for me anyway. And then in terms of the hair, I go to the team and train the team before we open. So we do like a two, three week induction and we ensure that every stylist is comfortable put, creating the Edwards & Co aesthetic. Um, so when I mean, what I mean by that is if you see a photo on Instagram, you know it's done by Edwards & Co. Um, and I think that is so important because it has to, that um, experience has to follow from the moment they walk into the salon, their experience during the salon, the moment they leave and then after and what they see on social media. It's all connected. And social media is the first and the last point of contact. Um, so even though I'm not in all the salons all the time, we do have head educators who ensure that the brand aesthetic of hair is on point. Um, and then if they notice the stylist isn't like keeping in our guidelines of brand aesthetic, then we'll just put them through some education, ask them how we can help. But I also think it's really important for us to recognize when someone's doing something that's more advanced than our brand aesthetic, or that could change our brand aesthetic for the better. Um, and I think one thing that we're changing now, and I will touch on this topic lightly, is we're becoming, we're making a huge effort to be much more diverse in our content that we post. Um, and that's like about listening to other, listening to our stylists and listening to what they want to do and stuff like that. Um, and that way, and that's what I mean by changing our brand aesthetic. Cause before it was just pretty blonde, long waves, you know, which is great, but it's not being inclusive and it's not diverse enough. God, that is refreshing to hear. Oh. <laughs> I'm so glad that you mentioned Instagram because I certainly from my perspective, your salon really was the first that I'd seen kind of anywhere to work with influencers in the same way that a physical brand would. And as you've said, you see any of the photos from any of your salons and you can go straight away. Okay. I know where this has come from. And I hadn't seen that from anywhere else before. So I would love to know if there was a strategy there because I imagine that that helped to contribute to that growth in a pretty huge way. Yeah, I think, well, let's start with, the, let's start with influencer marketing. Um, I, we invested heavily in influencer marketing. And when I say invested, I don't mean we paid any influencers. I don't actually, we don't pay any of our influencers. 
Um, we have mutually beneficial arrangements where they have their hair for free and they come in and they post. Um, because we focused so heavily on that, um, we were able to grow our social media following quite significantly. Um, and the other thing we focused on as well, which helps with that was um, local influencers. And what I mean by that is people who own restaurants, people who own cafes, retail stores, all that kind of thing. So we were inviting in the owners of those places to come in because those people are the people that tell everyone of their experience because they're coming into contact with so many people all the time. Um, and I guess the thing I did differently to other salons as well is I hired internal PR only a year after opening. Um, so that was a, a huge investment for us, but what it did is it kept us at the forefront um, of everyone, of every editor's minds so that we all had someone continuously talking to them. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I was doing, I do Lara Bingle's color. I still do, which is awesome. She's she been a huge. the best <laughs> hair in potentially yeah. the world. Definitely the Southern hemisphere, potentially Absolutely. on the planet. Oh. <laughs> um, and, you know, she's been a huge advocate and supporter of mine since before Edmonds and Co. So that's been incredibly helpful for our social media. But because we were able to harness Instagram and use it, as much as we could, I um, mean, it's, you know, it's definitely adapted since, since then as well. Um, but because we took it, took it by the horns and rode with it, invested in influencer marketing, we we're really able to grow a following quickly um, and a following that was engaged as well. This is such a generic thing to ask you about, but I do feel like it would be remiss of me to not touch on it. 2020, a broad question about how did you physically survive the year I don't think there were really any industries that were hit harder than yours yeah. so how did you not only keep the business afloat but also just keep that you know that culture alive and the morale high yeah so let's start with like how did we survive um so we developed home hair color kits yes um, which the reason we did that is because I was listening to my clients that's what they wanted I copped an incredible amount of online bullying for that from other hairstylists. Wait, what? Um, oh, yeah, it was shocking. Like, so shocking. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was wild. Um, but the thing that people don't realize is I was listening to my clients. That's the only person I cared about. And I needed to be able to pay my staff. That's yeah. the, all I cared about. So, you know, we made a considerable amount of money from those home hair color kids and it was enough to keep, keep my head office team in the office and employed because then we had JobKeeper, so we had everyone on JobKeeper as well. Um, but it allowed us to keep an income coming in. We developed home um, care kits, like blondes, frizzy hair, curly hair, whatever it was, we got creative. And, like, we sold more online during that time than we ever have before. We increased our online sales by 200% overnight. What? Wait, was it? No, was it? No, 700%. 700%. 700%. Um, overnight. And that was because we adapted and pivoted really fast. We changed our social media to be educational and informative. We taught people how to take care of their hair at home. Because the thing is, even if you're sitting at home, you still want to feel good. You still want to look good. Because um, it helps with your mental state of mind and everything else. 
So we're giving people the tools, the knowledge and the resources to be able to look after themselves at home. And then for our staff as well, we ran some incentives. So one incentive we ran was like, do a tutorial at home on yourself or put a wig on and do it on a wig. Um, and we'll give you a code to give to your followers on Instagram and you can make commission based on how many people use your code, Love which it. is really cool. And then we did the rags to riches challenge. So we did put on a wig, um, wrapped up, I, I did put on a wig, wrapped up the long hair and rags, dried it in and then like brushed it all out. And that was like an internal challenge that we all did together, which was really cool. Um, but, you know, we stayed in touch every second day with our team. I mean, and just stayed in touch every day with their teams. Um, and it was just like, it was really important to stay in communication and to let everyone know what was happening all the time because it was a scary time. We'd never been through anything like that before. Majority of our workforce is under 30. Um, so we just stayed in touch and that's kind of how we kept the team morale up, kept everyone motivated. Um, some of the teams had Zoom dinners together or a oh. Zoom movie club or something like that, which is super cool. Talk to me about J Hair Care. You learnt, launched sorry, your first product, which was the dry texture spray, as a salon exclusive in 2019. What yeah. inspired that launch? Because launching physical products is a very different thing to opening a salon. Yeah. Well, I think I had eight salons at that point and it just seemed like a natural next step for me to develop my own products. Like retail sales are 20% of our entire business, which is pretty, pretty impressive for yeah. us. Um, so it just seemed like the natural, the natural next step. And, you know, we had so many good products in Salon and, you know, there are products that are just as good as mine, maybe even better, who knows? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm biased. Um, but I wanted to just create something that was really easy to use. Everything was dual purpose because so many lines have a lot of products for the same thing. And I just wanted to make sure that all my products are dual purpose. You can use them in two or three ways. Um, super easy to use. Let like as little as ingredients as possible. Um, and just a more masculine looking product because so many products look so feminine. Yeah, <laughs> they really do. So how did you go about physically launching? How did you, you know, find the right manufacturer, decide which yeah. products you would launch with, even just things like sourcing and deciding on the packaging? There are so many elements that come into play. Yeah. So we, I went to a few, few different companies who offer a full, a full service. And by that, I mean, they do the packaging, the ingredients, the manufacturing, the filling, everything for you. Um, so I found one that I clicked with. Again, I went with my gut intuition found one that I clicked with. Um, I already knew what I wanted the packaging to look like because I'd been thinking about that for quite some time. Um, and then from there, to, from how I decided what to make first, I literally looked at what sold the most in my salons. And that then went sense. from there. Yeah. How does the process of formulating a new product work for you? How long does it take from conceptualizing the product through to it being available for your consumers? Um, so the first product took nearly 12 months. Um, mm -hmm. So we went through eight or nine samples before we got the one that I loved. Um, the second product only took six months. Mm -hmm. um, and the third product took about four months. Um, but then we've had a couple of issues with the packaging on that one, um, with it leaking, um, which is like, I mean, whatever, that shit happens. I think it's important not to get too caught up in like things that go wrong because you can fix it. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, the more we've made, the shorter the time has gotten because you think of all the things that could go wrong. So with the dry texture spray, it's an aerosol. Um, you've got to make sure the nozzle works properly. You've got to make sure that the powder in the dry texture spray doesn't settle on the bottom, you know, and that all these things kept happening with it as we tested it more and more and more. So when you get to the second product, you already have pre-thought about all the things that could go wrong. Then you get to the third product and it's like, okay, cool. Here's the huge list of things that could go wrong. And so let's develop this one a little bit quicker. Um, and depending on like what type of product it is, whether it's aerosol, a spray, a cream, a tube, um, that will also dictate on how long it might take to something kind of, for something to be developed. I would love to hear more about your work with Mecca. Firstly, yeah. how did Mecca Mains at the new Sydney CBD space, how did that come about? So I have known um, Sarah McLean for quite some time. Um, but when she worked at, oh my God, where did she work? One of the magazines. One of the mags. <laughs> yeah, one of the That's magazines. That's going to annoy me now. <laughs> um, and then she worked for Ausdare and then she went from Ausdare to Mecca. Um, and she just called me up one day. She was like, hey, I have this idea. I want to sit down with you and go over it. I think you'd be the perfect fit. And like, I, when I sat down with her and went over the idea, I was like, oh my God, like, holy shit, Mecca wants me to partner with them, what the fuck? Um, and at this point I had two products. So I was like, okay, how do we, I was like, I'm really keen on the blow dry bar. I think it's an incredible idea, but I want to include my products. Of course. <laughs> um, so that was like six months of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I think it was even longer than six months, to be honest, maybe even eight or nine. Um, and we finally got to an agreement that would not only ben would benefit both parties because the reality is with a blow dry bar compared to a normal salon, the profit margins are slim. So we looked at it from like a brand alignment perspective and that's what we're placing our value on. The products will do incredibly well as well. I think they're going into 30 stores on Tuesday, which is my, I mean, I'm so proud of that. And it, I still hear sometimes speechless because I'm like, how, how, how did we do that? Like, Mecca wants my product in 30 stores. What the fuck? <laughs> it's like, it's pretty crazy. I wanted to ask you about that because this will go live on the 31st. So it'll yes. be on the shelves. As soon as the girls said it's launching on the 30th, I was like, get him on the show now. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a huge thing. What do you feel that that level of visibility and also accessibility to the products, what do you think that's going to do for the brand? Um, I think it will do incredible things. I think that there is so much opportunity um, because I don't, from what I know of Mecca, there's never been someone, a hairstylist that's been as visible as I have become on social media. Agreed. Um, like in Australia before. So to partner with Mecca, who's probably, who is the most visible beauty retailer in Sydney, to partner together, I think we can achieve some extraordinary things together. Like extraordinary. I'm so excited for it. I've got shivers thinking about it. I'm, I'm so excited for you, honestly. I'm circling back slightly back to mm. having the blow dry bar. Did that present any challenges purely because the aesthetic in your salons is so clear, like we've talked about this DNA. Was it strange yeah. opening in someone else's space? Yes, it was. Um, I won't deny that for sure. We had have opened in another space before in the W Hotel in Brisbane, which we're no longer in. 
Um, but in comparison, Mecca was incredibly easy to work with and we're so happy to add aesthetics that we loved. For example, the artwork from Brian Connolly, they were so happy to have him come and paint on the walls there, which was amazing. Um, whereas like our past experience with the other people, um, they wouldn't allow us to come in and put our own touch to it. Mm. So the fact that Mecca would allow us to come in, add our own touch, give it the Edmonton Co aesthetic was amazing. I love that. As it stands, the range consists of three products. I have a couple of questions on this. Firstly, how have you managed to exercise restraint here? I know you've talked about wanting each of the products to be, you know, multi-use, but I'm always so impressed when a brand just has a concise edit because I feel like there is an art to saying, okay, let's do these products and we'll do them really well rather than just going, okay, we've got to do this, 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 this for the sake of doing it. So how has that process gone for you? It's been super hard. There are still a lot of products that I want to create. Um, But I mean, it's, it's expensive to create products. Like I'm not going to lie. The first one I think was like $90,000 just to get the first product off the ground. Um, And then the second and the third, like were didn't cost anywhere near that much, but still very expensive. Um, So Financially, it's constraining. So we've got to make sure that when we launch a product, that we launch it well, that we launch it successfully, and then we make sure that we get sales. Um, and now, like, we have to really listen to the market for our next products. Um, so, you know, the biggest thing right now is dry scalp, frizzy hair, and hair loss. They're the three main concerns of our clients. So the next products have to – we have to make sure – that they address one of those three concerns and then we'll always make sure that we develop products for success. I was going to ask if we could have a hint of what might be next, but there it is. I didn't yeah, have to definitely. ask. <laughs> so you've, at this point, you've now been a part of the beauty industry since you were literally a teenager. Yeah. Over the span of your career thus far, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty space? I think um, the how do I explain this? One of the biggest changes is people's visibility. Um, I think that before respect, admiration only came from your time in the industry and how long you'd been in the industry for. And it wasn't necessarily based on your ability to create. Um, So I think over time with social media, um, more people are given more opportunities because they are talented um, and not purely because they know the right people which I think is so, so important for every generation. It's not fair for the known few to get all, everything and then everyone else get nothing. With social media, it's allowed so many more people to be given opportunities, which I think is super cool. I also think people are allowed or have been able to become more successful at a younger age um, because it, before it would take so long to build a business. Now with social media and used, being used the right way, you, a young person can become successful um, so quickly. Um, and I think uh, the third thing, like more recently, which I'm a huge fan of is that finally in Australia, our beauty industry is becoming more diverse. Um, and I mean, I, I speak about this so much at work at the moment because I, you know, I don't think that Edwards & Co was diverse enough I think that we did not make enough effort to be diverse um, and I take full responsibility for that. Um, But I think 
finally, I mean, even Adore Beauty's released their campaign yeah, um, recently, amazing. which is awesome. Um, and, you know, Australia is a multicultural country. And for that to start coming through in the beauty industry, I think is a really, really special thing. Um, and I just think there's so much more, you know. It makes me kind of emotional talking about it to think that we've excluded so many people for so long. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Kind of jumping off that point, what do you think we can expect to see from the industry over the next few years? I think that the industry will, it's going to, it has to be flipped on its head. I think there's going to be more people becoming more visible. I think that there's going to be more people breaking more rules. Um, and it's going to be a really cool thing because for so long it has been the top few um, and it's going to change. I can't wait. <laughs> My final question, what's next for Edwards & Co and for Jay Haircare? Um, what's next? So I have so many ideas. It's just about choosing what ones to go for. Um, so I will definitely be opening a salon in Perth. Uh, which I'm so excited about because Perth has much cheaper rent than any other city. <laughs> so I can open a beautiful, glorious space. Um, and then we'll probably expand on the Gold Coast. I would love to open a subscription-based blow-dry bar where the subscription is redeemable on product. No one has done that in Australia just yet. So I am figuring out a way how I can do that. Um, and J Hair Care is just about making sure that we are able to launch products successfully um, and just strengthening our partnership with Mecca. I think, as I said before, I think Mecca and Edwards and & Co and J Hair Care um, have a real opportunity to achieve some extraordinary things. That was Jay Edwards, founder of Edwards and & Co and J Hair Care which you can find on Instagram at Edwards and Co and at Jay Haircare. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.